0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, these weapons are hot, hot, hot.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow. I am Gepwin and I am joined, as always, with our good friend, Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week, we are talking about the star trek original series episode errand of mercy it's gonna be merciful i hope it's merciful last few episodes have been a little unmerciful on me <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long week i need some mercy so this episode is another one written by gene l coon who's gonna start showing up a lot a lot a lot because he eventually becomes uh, one of the producers i believe uh we've had a couple episodes from him so far some of the better ones people credit him with creating modern star trek in fact we covered a little bit of this last week but you know we have another story by him bodes well you'd think <laughs> again we only have two major guest stars john colix as Kor, who is one of the klingons who show up in this episode Klingon to everything here right yeah that's what a klingon does right very clingy he is very clingy in this episode like it, it was very difficult for my synopsis not to just turn into homoerotic fan fiction.
0: <laughs> really, really up in uh, Kirk's business here. Yeah. Real personal.
1: We also have John Abbott, who's playing a character called Aelborn, who's kind of the, not exactly leader, but uh, audience audience talker, to of the resident aliens.
0: Yes, uh, in my uh, notes, uh, it autocorrected his name to Airborne. so if I say that later on, that's why.
1: <laughs> aleborn's a weird one at least they had some like properly not english sounding names
0: now, now, now john abbott uh you know there has been in a number of things but uh the uh the most important thing uh is that he was uh, after this uh like the next year he was in the wild wild west as a guest star oh and so and so that gives me excuse to uh go we're going straight to the wild wild west we're going straight to the Wild, Wild West.
1: I'd almost forgotten that movie existed. Someone has to remind me of that like every year and make <laughs> me remember it again. I try so hard.
0: I've taken care of 2018. I'll have to do it in a couple weeks then, uh, least, you know, recording these ahead of time, folks. Anyway. Yeah,
1: <laughs> for you, that was your first probably Wild West reference of the year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, this one... Eh, a little iffy on themes and stuff but i suppose we can just jump in and then talk about some of the stuff afterward i did not know how much i liked this episode i guess it wasn't a particularly bad one
0: it had its moments for me but uh you know there were some things you're like uh <laughs> we're doing this kind of plot again i've seen this so much in sci-fi and it's like oh hmm, yes
1: <laughs> yeah well maybe this was one of the first times it was in sci-fi
0: Sure, sure, true, true. And uh, I do like some of the things they did with it. I don't always run into that, so.
1: All right, let's just jump in and see how quick we can get through this pile of something. <laughs> <laughs> we join the Enterprise as the Federation is on the brink of war and expecting a surprise attack from the unbeforementioned mentioned Klingon Empire. Oh, no. Yes, the Klingons, of course, later become one of the mainstay aliens of the series that this is their very very first appearance the enterprise has been sent out to prevent the klingons from gaining a forward operating base on the planet orgonia which is a peaceful world with a primitive technology level that spock references as a d minus on richter's scale of cultures so there's
0: a richter scale for this stuff now
1: yes it's how much the culture shakes
0: i guess i don't know (laughs) They're, they're not they're not much party animals so they're, they're pretty passive here so it doesn't shake too much so you
1: know i was i was all ready to make fun of this thing when i was watching this episode i was like i should wait just make sure this isn't some weird obscure thing that i haven't heard of nope completely made up
0: yeah. <laughs> now there is like uh you know, the other the various uh you know i think it's kardashev scales for civilizations where like it's energy uses things like that yeah know well, they don't really have that here so i, I don't remember when that was created so not exist yet
1: <laughs> kirk compares the mission they're on to being akin to armenia or uh, belgium as innocent civilizations that have been caught in the route of an invasion indeed this is the first of our weird conflicted themes we're getting into just then the crew is thrown across the bridge as they are attacked unexpectedly by a klingon ship but the enterprise very easily destroys them this is not gonna be much of a war. It seems like it's gonna be a really easy war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk and Spock even joke about having been shot. Hey, we've been shot. Isn't this is amusing? Ho ho. They're like, well, we were expecting a surprise attack. It's like, well, that maybe was one. Haha. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but Uhura reports that Starfleet Command has sent out a general bulletin. The Federation is now officially at war.
0: Oh no, we're all gonna die! Or maybe it's just Klingons well, at this rate.
1: They reach Oregonia, and Kirk orders Sulu that he is to leave them there to protect the ship if the Klingons attack. He and Spock beam down, materializing in the center of a medieval-looking town square thing. They get a resounding meh from the locals.
0: Yeah, it's like they just, you know, beam people beam down all the time. It's, it's, it's normal, apparently.
1: Yeah, Kirk comments <laughs> on how they have a really big lack of interest in people suddenly appearing out of nowhere. And a man in purple robes runs up and introduces himself as Aelborn, the chairman of the Council of Elders.
0: Oh, this seems like someone we don't want to talk to.
1: Yeah. What's up? What's
0: up, Airborne?
1: <laughs> he takes Kirk and Spock to see the council, where Kirk explains to them that the Klingons are coming. And that if they don't accept Federation assistance, the Klingons will occupy the planet under a military dictatorship. It
0: seems like bad news for these uh, locals here. They, they're The uh, Oregonians but organians, or I'm mispronouncing it, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: it's something like that. It does seem like it would be bad news, but Aelborn tries to explain that they are a simple, peaceful people with no interest in help from anyone, and they're really not in any real danger.
0: All right, well, if that's true, then, then, then how, why, why do you say this guy?
1: <laughs> it would be nice if someone, you know, asked him to explain at some point. Spock enters and reports that the civilization is not in fact progressing. This is, again, another one of these ones that hasn't progressed, I guess. He has found no evidence that the civilization has changed in technology level in the last several thousand years.
0: So this means that they are they have free reign to intervene because they're not a, a developing civilization anymore. Hooray!
1: Yep, that was the rules we established a couple episodes ago. <laughs> Kirk continues to try to talk them into taking Federation aid, even saying that he could help them elevate their society like a good little colonialist
0: yeah, you, you, you want to be uh, friends with us as opposed to that evil empire over there that... It's definitely not up to any good and would like to exploit you in horrible fashions, guys.
1: But Aelborn, again, says they're not in any danger, and they just don't understand. Let me explain, but then Kirk says shut up, I'm getting a phone call. Kirk, maybe you should shut up here. (laughs) It's Sulu, and the Enterprise is under attack by Klingons, so Kirk orders them to fall back until they can come back with the rest of the fleet, leaving Kirk and Spock now stranded on the planet. Another council member, who we are introduced to as Trephane says that there are eight ships now in orbit and that several hundred Klingons have breamed down to the planet. Trephane is apparently a human sensor because they say that he's just very intuitive and can know sh- stuff.
0: He just sort of knows these things.
1: Yeah, you know, there's no computers in front of them. Just, this guy just says, uh, says it's true. They say that they need to protect Kirk and Spock, who protest that if they had taken the military help they were offering a little bit ago, they wouldn't be in this mess, which is just not true at all.
0: You see, if they had accepted the deal with the Federation, there'd still be a bunch of Klingons up in orbit and the Enterprise would run off. So I don't know what Kirk
1: <laughs> expects would have happened if they'd said, yes, we would like your help.
0: Kirk, I think you're getting your uh, your, your timeline here a little little weird.
1: <laughs> Aelborn ignores him and just gives Kirk and Spock disguises so that they can blend in as Kirk and Oregonian and Spocky Vulcan merchant.
0: A little unusual, but okay.
1: <laughs> I guess Vulcan merchants are pretty common, they said. Also, this is the first time they start calling him Vulcan. They, they kind of go between Vulcan and Vulcanian. And this is the last episode in which they use Vulcanian. So we're finally done with that nonsense.
0: All right, we're going to have consistency. <laughs>
1: yes. Kirk gets really annoyed that they took their phasers, but Elborn says they can't let them go around armed because they might hurt somebody. Seems reasonable.
0: You know, you, know, you, you don't want your, uh, you know, your random colonialist guys who showed up here with all these weird demands, you know, sh- you know shooting people randomly. Could get anyone killed. Yeah, especially themselves. on your
1: good old <laughs> pacifist planet here. Yeah, <laughs> the Klingons arrive and enter the chamber, and oh, the Klingons! So much makeup—they're all oh. white dudes in brown face with weird yeah. gold, sort of chainmaily looking armor. Their leader has a full Fu Manchu beard thing going on. So yeah, you know, basically, they
0: look like they just wandered out of a uh, propaganda poster from like the uh, the forties.
1: Yes, it is like it's really bad. <laughs> The leader introduces himself as Kor, Governor of Oregonia, which is where they are now. Kor,
0: I think I like your your later appearances better.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he does show up, same actor, in DS9 for two or three episodes. Yes, uh, and there's a bit of
0: adventures involving Dax and and Worf there.
1: Kor asks about Kirk and Spock, and Aelborn explains all of the backstories. Uh, Kirk is a bit silent, which leads to Kor to say that he's going to teach Kirk how to use his tongue and then he tells Kirk to smile more.
0: That's a little little, little funky here. Um, it's always kind of awkward when someone tells someone else to smile more. I
1: just had to. There's, there's like this weird thing going on between them that I can't explain except it's like definitely spawned fan fiction. Yes.
0: <laughs> some sort of bromance of some sort. That's, yeah. That becomes more? Question Probably mark?
1: more. <laughs> Kor orders Spock taken away since Vulcans are members of the Federation, but Kirk objects. Kor likes this because everyone else on the planet is too passive for his liking.
0: So you like the aggressive types, eh?
1: Yes. He loves it when they fire and, and fight back. This is. I'm. No. Kor <laughs> <sighs> decides that since Kirk is so feisty, he's going to make him his assistant on the planet, and he takes Spock off to be interrogated. The Oregonians are still just fine with everything and honestly seem a little bored with the situation.
0: Like, yeah, we just kind of don't care. Whatever. Take them away. We don't care.
1: Kor takes Kirk to his office to lay out all the millions and millions of millions of Klingon laws, every single one of which is punishable by death. At least they're consistent. No, just uber evil imperialists, I guess.
0: You know, you know everything must be, you know, you know, ultimate obedience and, uh, And, you know, do this, do that, no jaywalking, otherwise you lose everything, especially your life. No no gatherings of three people or more, and uh, all publications must be approved, et cetera, et cetera. And
1: then, yeah. Another Klingon enters with Spock reporting that he seems to be who he claims. Kor explains that they know this because they used a sifter, or some may call it a mine ripper, depending on how much force they use. Sounds unpleasant. Apparently, it can either read someone's mind or empty it completely, leaving them in a complete vegetable-like state.
0: So is Spock now a vegetable?
1: Nope, Spock's fine, because he was good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess that might be uh, why the uh, Organians, you know, were extra sort of meh about Spock being uh, taken off to basically be potentially tortured to death.
1: They just love this thing. He, like, cannot shut up about this mind ripper doohickey. He mentions it like three times here and like six times later. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, it's it's like, you know, folks that get, uh, you, know, uh, you know, super into their, you know, newest, uh, you know, uh, tech device. It's like, oh, here's my new iPad and I'm now going to, uh, you know, use it to do all the things I r- really love to do all the time, which for Klingons is like interrogate and kill people. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: and it's just this really important thing that's definitely worth spending 15 minutes of the episode on that's really going to do something important later does it no (laughs) they mention it so much and it never shows up not in the entire episode they they like claim they use it on spock once
0: and and spock's fine with it so (laughs) just because spock is like i'm so mentally disciplined that it doesn't matter
1: kirk and spock go outside and kirk jokes about how the mind sifter can't really be that bad because spock's fine But Spock tells him that it was really awful, and if Kirk did it, he wouldn't have the same mental barriers that Spock does that would prevent them from finding out the truth, so he should really try to avoid the torture thing. Sounds
0: reasonable, and also Spock is calling you weak, Kirk. How do you feel about that?
1: (laughs) He probably doesn't feel good. Probably hurts. I hope it hurts, because he should have gotten his brain smashed in the other episode, but eh. Yeah. <laughs> they see some Klingons being mean to Oregonians and Spock has to hold Kirk back from attacking them, which would get them all killed.
0: Well, it seems like a reasonable thing for Spock to do, though. Maybe Spock should just run away and let it happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, Kirk has like no self control in this situation, and it's ho- and it's like horrible.
0: Yeah, you you think that like these Klingons like killed a son or something? Just with how he's reacting. Come on.
1: <laughs> and there's some time warp stuff now. Kirk decides that what they really need to do is to show all these passive Oregonians that they can resist the Klingon occupation and the best way to do that would be to blow up a munitions depot outside the Klingon's headquarters.
0: So a strike for freedom that uh, rally everyone to do action then.
1: They decide to wait till nightfall and get a grenade from somewhere.
0: Just when not have have them flying around, you know.
1: Yep, they then put the grenade inside of a large stack of empty cardboard boxes that explode into a lot of fireworks. Cool. Later, Aelborn is appalled at this level of violence. Kirk tries to convince him that they just want to teach them how to fight back against this occupation, but Aelborn is still just really upset and says that they don't understand them at all. Kirk makes no effort to understand them at all. <laughs>
0: So Elborn is very correct.
1: (laughs) We see Kor has a listening device that he's been using in the council, and he just heard Kirk and the council talking about how Kirk just blew up all their munitions. Whoops. Kirk, you've been caught. (laughs) They didn't even check for this massive, obvious bug.
0: Yes. It, like, has a blinking light and everything. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Kor comes into the council room to use the mind scanner on Kirk but Aelborn says they don't need to use that because he's just going to tell them who Kirk really is so they don't have to hurt him.
0: Well, that kind of works, I guess. So he's kind of doing something to keep Kirk from being injured. Mm-hmm. That's nice, but Kirk's not too happy about
1: that. Yeah, Kirk gets all passive-aggressive and says he's used to the idea of dying to protect people, but not the likes of you.
0: Yeah, it seems that Kirk and Korra are really not liking these Arganians
1: or- 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 here. Yeah, they're really freaking mean to everyone core takes kirk to his office just to talk i just want to talk it's just to talk
0: Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna chill we're gonna have a conversation it's gonna be nice it's gonna be pleasant here uh, do you want a drink
1: (laughs) kirk takes kirk to his office to netflix and chill over some drinks oh you you'd understand like if you watch this episode your, your mind's going to the same places
0: yep because <laughs> yeah Cor is really really enamored with kirk here <laughs> yes
1: core tells kirk how much he likes and admires him and that he would hate to use the mind scanner on him we have a mind scanner and i like using my mind scanner did i mention my mind scanner <laughs>
0: Yeah, I want to show you my mind scanner, and I am going. I want to you know, mind scan you with it, but I also don't want to mind scan you with it because it would hurt you. I don't want to hurt you, Kirk.
1: With my mind scanner, TM. With my mind scanner. Kor <laughs> gives Kirk 12 hours before he mind scans him, or he can just give him the locations of all the ships in the Federation fleet. He's also going to dissect Spock to figure out how Vulcans resist their mind scanner. Then he throws him into an old-timey dungeon.
0: So so I'd I say that Kirk could easily, like, pose that, oh, I just met this Spock character on this planet, and he was, you know, I convinced him to help me. He's actually just a merchant. Then Kor might be dissuaded from, like, you know, dis- dissecting him or something. He could,
1: though apparently they're so frickin' famous at this point, the minute Kor hears that this is Captain Kirk, he goes, aha, you must be Spock, the first officer. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, my fame has got me again. Especially
1: <laughs> since Spock didn't even bother to use a false name.
0: Yes. <laughs> Wait a moment. How many Spocks are there in the uh, uh, Vulcanians uh, society there?
1: <laughs> Kirk and Spock sit in this big dungeon and discuss how weird it is that the Orgonians don't seem to understand that all of their fighting for them is for their own good that if they can just get outside, they can take the fight to Core, and that might actually do some good, probably, except there's no way to get out of this heavily guarded jail cell.
0: And then even if they did, they'd be like facing down an entire Klingon battalion.
1: Just then, the door opens by itself and Aylborne comes in to let them out. Thank you? Kirk asks why Aylborne is suddenly helping them, because a minute ago he turned them into the Klingons, and he again tells them that they just don't understand anything that's going on.
0: Well, that's, that's kind of clear at this point. Kirk should really be asking more questions. Yeah,
1: or a question. <laughs> but to a degree,
0: Kirk's kind of like really pumped up about the whole big war conflict thing. And he's like, well, I'm you know sort of acting as a soldier in this role today. And I need to be uh, going out and fighting an enemy. And so I'm a little distracted by that singular focus of what I'm supposed to be doing.
1: Yeah, he really wants to go war at something.
0: He wants to bust some heads.
1: Kor has found out that Kirk is gone and orders that the Oregonians start to be rounded up and shot. <laughs> he gets on the speaker system and announces that he just killed 200 Oregonians, and if Kirk and Spock are not returned to them, he will kill 200 more every two hours. Well, why not 100 every hour? Because it's, I don't know. It's a good point. Yeah. Maybe Klingons use it's a different system of hours that gets translated weirdly. Perhaps. Hmm. Let's think about this later. Elborn is very unconcerned about this, but Kirk is having a freak out.
0: So, you, two, like 200 of your people have just been murderated. Um, you, you seem really chill about that. Yeah, it's like, yeah. He seems a weird guy.
1: Hmm. Kirk decides that he and Spock need to go take out Kor themselves, and he threatens Ailborn until he gives up the phasers. He gives a big speech about how much he hates them and their passive ways, but he's going to show them that some things are worth fighting and dying for, and then he and Spock run off.
0: Damn you hippies. Ailborn and
1: the council says that they must be stopped. These two crazy people that they have on their planet now.
0: <laughs> so we gotta click on you know, you know, occupation force, which is you know supposedly maybe murdering our people, and we got these other two guys who are gonna go murder a bunch of other people. Everything's just kind of spiraling out of control. Um, we should maybe like figure out some
1: way to deal with this. That night again, Kirk and Spock begin the infiltration of Kor's headquarters. Spock says they have a 7,824.7 to one chance of succeeding. And they have some banter, inappropriately timed banter.
0: And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you know, don't never tell me the odds sort of situation, but, you know, it's it's, cause it's so ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: They stun two guards and run into the building. Kirk sees core ordering another 200 people to be rounded up. And then he he like jumps and wraps his belt around one of the Klingon guards and asks for directions to Kor's office, which I'm pretty sure he was just in. So I don't know why he needs to do this.
0: Maybe like closed his eyes on the way out.
1: Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) They knock out the guard and assault Kor's office. They hold Kor at gunpoint, but Kor is amused because. Their fleets just got there and are about to meet and battle above the planet. So nothing they do down here really matters. And he just asks if they'd like to, you know, sit around and see how it turns out before they kill each other.
0: It kind of seems like a reasonable uh, suggestion. You know, you know, if, you know, the wrong person gets murderated and then, you know, the other side is victorious, then you, you just gonna get murderated, too. And then both, you know, everyone dies here.
1: Kor gives some kind of speech about how Klingons are predators and humans are predators and they're stuck on a planet full of sheep, but what makes Klingons so strong is that they're constantly being surveilled, and he points out that there's a bug on the ceiling that's been watching this whole thing just before a bunch of Klingons burst into the room.
0: Surprise! The
1: surveillance devices are everywhere. Yep. You maybe would have, should have figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as the Klingons enter, everyone drops their weapons.
0: Everyone's giving up? No, they're still going to go for the hand-to-hand combat. They still have murder
1: on their mind. They try to grab Kirk, but this also causes them pain, and they jump away. And then we cut to the Enterprise to see everyone jump up away from their consoles as well.
0: Everyone jump, jump. Chris Cross is going to make you jump, jump.
1: <laughs> Spock says that all of the weapons, and also their bodies, have now become too hot to actually touch. Aelborn enters and says that he's sorry about this, but I can't allow you to harm each other.
0: So uh, apparently a wizard?
1: Yeah, he's, he's like a space wizard. He's definitely just a space Merlin. Yes. <laughs> the Oregonians have now made it so that all of the weapons and all of the ships are basically inoperable and they aren't allowed to touch each other. They are also apparently projecting images of themselves onto both the Klingon home planet and the Federation home planet, demanding that their leaders put a stop to this stupid war. Kirk argues that they actually don't have any right to stop them. They have a right to wage war if they want to. And Aelborn asks if he is really defending the right to kill millions of innocent people.
0: Kirk, you might be in the wrong here, just FYI.
1: Kirk looks really awkward.
0: Wait a moment. Oh, huh. <laughs>
1: Both Kirk and Kor start to make some really kind of half-thought-out arguments for how war is some sort of thing they should be allowed to do if they want. But Aelborn basically says, if you fight now, a lot of people will die, and then eventually you'll be at peace. And if you stop fighting now, a lot of people won't die, and you'll be at peace. So it's pretty pointless to, you know, kill a lot of people.
0: It seems like a reasonable argument overall. And uh, yeah, I think he also mentions, like, you know, someday the uh, Federation and the Klingons would actually, like, be friends and work together on stuff.
1: Yeah, and they both go, ha, I scoff at thee.
0: Well, 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 so you know the, how this thing turns out. Well, you know who's correct. If you're not familiar with the later series of Star
1: Trek, there'll, there'll be some surprises later. <laughs> or maybe not. When Kirk asks the Oregonians why they don't care that the Klingons have killed hundreds of them, they say no one has died on this planet for thousands of years. We're not really here. Okay, then. Well, why didn't you mention that sooner? <laughs> because Kirk kept interrupting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're not actually humanoids. They are a species of aliens that have evolved past the need for physical bodies and exist purely as some sort of sentient energy.
0: So they've all ascended to a higher plane of existence, so they don't really care.
1: Elborn and his friends turn into bright spots of light and then disappear.
0: They evaporated.
1: Neat. Kirk and Kor agree that they really would have liked to try to kill each other, but it's too bad the Oregonians won't let them.
0: Maybe we'll kill each other later.
1: (laughs) Back on the ship, Kirk is still really annoyed that he's not the most powerful being in the universe.
0: Well, Kirk, you can be wrong about some things, but, okay, maybe you're wrong about a lot of things, but, you know, being the most powerful uh, being in the universe is maybe not all that great, honestly. Uh, Besides, maybe somebody else who is a little bit more, uh, I don't know having everything together would be a better person to be on that that
1: job but spock consoles him by saying that even the gods didn't spring into existence overnight implying that if kirk tries hard enough maybe he will be a god one day um
0: aspirations he also says that they
1: should feel good about beating the odds but kirk says they didn't beat the odds the oregonians raided the game the end i don't i don't know what that moral message is supposed to be
0: well, I'd argue that the moral message, if there is one, uh, is that you know, s- you know sometimes that you know war can be kind of just pointless. Of course, it helps if you're also super powerful a- energy beings, but you know.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think through this because it's not exactly a pacifist alien society. Like, they, mm-hmm. they're they espousing a lot of pacifism. They're saying they are nonviolent. They're saying they don't want other people to hurt anyone. They're against the war in general. But the only reason that they are able to maintain pacifism is because they have superpowers. Yes,
0: yeah. You know, the, the Klingon's weapons and the Federation weapons, they don't really kind of work on them at all. So they can just sort of afford to not care.
1: Yeah, they're basically invulnerable. They can not care. They can also have this mass amount of power to enforce their pacifism. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what you would actually call that.
0: Um, uh, pacifistic imperialism.
1: Yeah, it's something <laughs> along those lines.
0: because right. yeah, they really are, you know, to, to a certain degree, they are very much enforcing their will upon both the Federation and the Klingons. Uh, you know, they're just sort of doing it in a nonviolent sort of fashion. Now, unless you call, call the you know the experiencing of uh, you know pain to be a uh, you know a violence in this case, it
1: probably would be. I found this <laughs> I found this quote. It was like third hand. It was in a speech that Noam Chomsky was giving about uh, about how he doesn't believe in true pacifism, uh, but he quoted this guy named A.J. Must, who had a concept of revolutionary pacifism. And uh, he basically said that one should be a revolutionary before one can be a pacifist, by which he kind of meant if you want to espouse pacifism, you have to also not acquiesce to evil.
0: Yeah, so you're able to take a, you know, a proper stand uh, you know, on you know, other things before you can internalize the nonviolence end of things. Yeah,
1: I just I really loved this quote. It's actually somewhat applicable to what the Oregonians were doing. He said, the problem after war is with the victor. He thinks he has just proved that war and violence pay, and who will teach him a lesson? <laughs>
0: That's a very good uh, you know, perspective there, because, you know, if you, you are basically, you know, right makes right uh, sort of, you know, you, know, you know, viewpoint here, then you are, you know, by having military victory, you are you know effectively, you know, it's like, well, I've just self-fulfilled my prophecy here, so uh, good on me, and... I'm not going to think any more critically about this.
1: Yeah, well, the, you know, there's that old thing, history is wit- written by the victors, but this even you're sneaky has the thing of, like, you know, if you've won the war, you achieved your goal with war, therefore, good.
0: And then, you know, victory forever, hooray! It worked,
1: especially when you're dealing with a, the entity like the United States, who's war casualties are always in the military we never have civilian casualties we never have attacks on the home soil our infrastructure never gets affected it's it's just purely a military exercise
0: mhm it's always somewhere else it's always over there
1: so that's kind of this weird thing i couldn't figure out who the stand-ins were supposed to be on this episode exactly because you could kind of see the oregonians as the united states peacekeeping force our kind of world police thing that we had especially going into like the it kind of started in the 50s and 60s and got more and more so up into the 90s and we've been half moving away from it as we've gone later and later into the 2000s Mm -hmm. but it's a weird one on this because you could kind of look at the oregonians that way but the federation is almost always the united states stand in in these episodes
0: so I guess it's maybe like different parts of the US then?
1: Maybe. Cuz you know,
0: this is this sort of taking place, you know, this episode was created late 60s. There's that whole Vietnam thing there and you know, people that were for the war, people were against the war, all sort of, you know, you know in a you know social political sort of conflict here at home. And you know, it's you know so you know maybe it's sort of you know supposed to be analogous to sort of that division.
1: Maybe though that you didn't have a lot of you didn't have a lot of active violent resistance to Vietnam you had some stuff that got kind of mixed in with the with the like civil rights movements but a lot of the a lot of those vietnam resistance was fairly passive
0: Oh, well, it's just like the Oregonians.
1: yeah that's true but they they used force to you know they they had the power to enforce this
0: i guess yeah you know, if you want to keep pushing the uh, analogy that you know uh, you know if this was you know if this is the view then you know then as far as the you know application in the real world this would be say you know a change in political leadership uh it's like oh we're not going to be supporting uh, lyndon johnson anymore or get someone who's actually anti-war here and then they turn out not to be mm. <laughs> but um but you know so we're enforcing our will and we're doing it in a way that maybe stings and hurts for the uh the the pro-war opposition but is it, you know, inevitably not going to leave lasting harm on them because we are operating in a democracy, but it's, this is, this is all very much stretching the analogy at this point.
1: The only thing I could think of that worked for an analogy is if the Argonians are nuclear weapons.
0: I guess that also kind of works.
1: They're like physically preventing people from having a large scale war and therefore forcing negotiations and peace, but only between two military superpowers.
0: I I can see that. Yeah, that might work better actually.
1: <laughs> there was another thing when I was reading about the revolutionary pacifism. They had this thing that that after the invention of the uh after the invention of nukes, uh right after World War II, war changed mm-hmm. from this thing that you know any squabbling countries could do to something that a power would only ever pursue war against a foe that could not defend themselves because if you did it against someone who could defend themselves the consequences were world-ending and
0: it uh yeah spirals out of control and suddenly all the nukes are going everywhere and everyone dies
1: yeah so it it turns war from this it turned war from a like squabbling city-state thing especially in europe because before World War One and World War Two. Europe was just constantly at war with itself.
0: It's like, oh, hello, uh, you, know, you know, pressured invasion of uh, you know, France in order to uh, force military unification of Germany, and hello there, you know, you know Spanish Civil War, and uh, hello here. Everything happening in the Balkans constantly since the Ottomans, and before that with the Byzantines, et cetera, et cetera, and... <laughs> yeah just certain of a constant bloodbath
1: so after world war ii you get into all the proxy wars like vietnam and korea and the things the united states is involved in which gets you into this interesting thing when you're looking at it with the oregonians because kirk and spock are the you know u.s people coming in to help them overthrow the evil klingon invaders and they are mm-hmm. so frustrated that the people don't want to rise up in guerrilla warfare with them.
0: Don't you want to go and uh, fight these guys who are here and doing things? Um, we, we don't care?
1: <laughs> yeah, they basically say, like, we're going to show you how non-pacifism is the answer. And they go, no, you're not. What if we're just kind of cool with whoever's
0: in charge? Is that okay, too? No, it's not okay, apparently.
1: the The only real thing you can talk about is pacifism. But they didn't do it very well, and they kind of like weirded out the ending. There were obviously like two or three plot threads that they wanted to have in here that just got completely dropped at some point. There was a very.
0: Some of them kind of ended up being sort of more flavor, I guess, in the end, as opposed to anything sort of serious, as far as.
1: Yeah, well, they kept talking about this mind sifter probe scanner thing, and they kept mentioning this giant fortress that they had on top of a hill this big old medieval looking castle thing
0: oh well, isn't that where uh core and all the uh, dungeons and such were set up
1: i think they yeah i think they said that they were in there once when they had the dungeon but like other than that it was basically useless it could have been any old building
0: i guess uh yeah you know, the or you know organians uh sort of like created all the uh the sets on, on this episode uh in order to basically serve visitors so maybe they uh knew that you know there's probably gonna be some klingons hanging out nearby so they like klingons like castles right let's build a
1: castle over there i also think it's a really weird one in this that we've we've never ever ever gotten a justification for war from this show
0: yeah just sort of well things are now and you know you know come to odds and we have to declare war and everything's gonna go falling apart and everyone's gonna die
1: we've had like four war-ish things so far we had the thing with the romulans where they basically just said we can't understand each other and they're evil
0: yeah, and so people attacked each other and we don't know what's even the conflict's even about.
1: Yeah, they don't know what the conflict is about. The Romulans keep talking about how they are obviously the superior power and are going to just attack people. So again, I guess in super innocent United States being attacked by evil foreign aggressors.
0: Yeah, they're they're imperializing everywhere. and That's, that's terrible. We don't ever do that. Yeah, of course right? not.
1: The actual like big 500 year war they had in Taste of Armageddon, they never tell you what that's about.
0: Yeah, it's just a conflict. That yeah, no one. they're not fighting over anything.
1: Yeah. They the yeah. only <laughs> thing they actually ever got close to justifying anything with was in Arena when the Federation accidentally colonized a a Gorn planet and they retaliated. But that wasn't actually a war.
0: Yeah, it was more of a minor border skirmish. Yeah,
1: and in this one, the Klingons are just attacking out of nowhere. Like, this is the first time we hear the word Klingons mentioned. If you weren't coming at this from our, like, 50 years of Star Trek, we'd have no clue who these people were when they mentioned them.
0: Yeah, you know, all we can really get for characterization is what sort of, you know, coarse behavior where he's like, I like aggressive people, and aggressiveness is cool, and that's about it.
1: But even before that, like the first line of the freaking episode is the Klingons are going to attack. We don't know the ideologies of these people. You mentioned that the Klingons are a military dictatorship, but we don't know what their strategies are. We don't know what, what they want. We don't, know, we don't even know the Federation ideology at this point. There's,
0: there's maybe something called a prime directive, but we don't even know what that is at this point.
1: So. They're, they're basically having all these wars for the sake of having wars because the other people are evil. Just by fiat, yes. <laughs> the the only reason to have this is because the other people are not good and you are good.
0: I guess is is uh sort sort of the in universe sort of you know uh you know rundown is that you know Kirk knows the reasons for all this stuff as well as everyone who'd be reading his logs, but we in the audience don't know, and so it's just sort of I guess an accidental admission there, I guess but it doesn't really make good storytelling
1: yeah it's just not It's well it's not even attempted to be explained and I don't yeah. I don't buy that they like thought everyone should know All, the only justification that an American in the 1960s needs for war is that the people you're fighting aren't American
0: I guess to a certain degree that is still true with some folks
1: yeah I think so I don't want to go on the war stuff too much but I think so I think that that would segue us nicely into Orientalism
0: yeah, so so let's go somewhere really awkward then. Yeah. So should we uh, start with the, the general stuff there, or should I talk about the Mongol Empire?
1: <laughs> well, I guess generally uh, a lot of the ideas that I'm coming from are based on some reading that I did about Edward Said, who wrote the book Orientalism in uh, in 1978, which is like the – it is the text on how – Americans, uh, Europeans like France and Britain kind of view the Middle East and by some extension uh, you know, Eastern Asia like China and Japan.
0: Now basically everything to the east of Western Turkey.
1: The kind of really interesting thing, this is something that I found kind of fascinating in an interview they had with, that, I, that I saw with Said. He defines this idea of Orientalism as a new type of imperialism that started with Napoleon because Napoleon invaded Egypt. And instead of just militarily occupying Egypt, he brought a bunch of scientists and scholars to Egypt and commissioned them to write a book about Egypt for the French. So basically, he got to define as an occupying colonialist force everything about the Egyptian people.
0: Everything that is, is now being defined in French.
1: Yeah, the French get and to it's define going to be totally
0: it. accurate, right? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the French define what these people are about. French people come in, do French studies funded by a French military commander to write a French book that is For the like, text that they will use to define Egyptian culture.
0: In the meantime, they'll also run off a lot of loot and uh, artifacts and cool stuff they thought that was, was you know important.
1: Yeah, that too. So the whole thing with Orientalism is is it's this newer, more modern type of colonialism where it's more about definitions than it is about occupation. Even though there was a decent amount of occupation happening, especially with the French and English, uh, less so in the United States.
0: So, so, so if I'm, I'm getting this right, this is sort of like okay, we are sort of defining what this culture is, and then we kind of you know internalize that. And then when we interact with them, we sort of force them to sort of fall into this uh you know caricature of them that we are perceiving for, you know about them. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there was this really kind of interesting thing where Saeed said that he was looking into kind of American perceptions of where he was born, which was uh Palestine. And mm-hmm. uh the American perceptions of the Middle East were All about this land of like magic and old-timey things and dancing women in veils but not only was it completely wrong it was internally consistent which led him to kind of examine it and codify it into his book Orientalism
0: yeah the story has uh, spread so far and so wide but it's also you know you know, you know it fits together you know no matter if you're talking to somebody in you know New York or London or some you know somewhere else you know in the West that they all are all giving the same, uh, you know, set of stereotypes and ideas, and it just, It's just kind of weird like that.
1: You don't need to do much in this thing. Like you look at like the set of Aladdin, and you know mm-hmm. that's in the Middle East, even though it looks nothing like anywhere in the Middle East.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if anything, the you know, the big palace kind of looks like uh, the, the Taj Mahal, which is more in the Yeah, it
1: looks like a weird mix of India and Russia. Oh yeah, (laughs) but this is the this is so internalized that this is how we view the Middle East, and we also have this internalized view of how we view East Asia. Like you know, you have this view of Japan in America that is like a little less different because Japan has started making a lot of cultural exports, but it's still this view that Americans have of Japan and China that gets used in things, and this is why. It keeps getting defended as not racism, because people want to just say it's cliches. It's you know, it's not negative is the main argument. It's just like you know, you you put someone in Japanese style face paint, and use them in an ad campaign, and people are like, well, how's that negative? It's just like this view of beauty, Asian beauty or whatever.
0: It's that's not really Asian beauty, at least not you know, in a, you know, you know, consistent fashion, even throughout, you know, the country you're trying to, you know, taking these elements from. Yeah. And, uh, and it's sort of, it's very limiting and, you know, this is the only acceptable way.
1: That's the thing is like, it's the way that you have to portray people from this area, but people like to argue it because it's this newer kind of imperialism that is not, it's not so defined in superiority. As it is just a control of definitions.
0: I guess there is, you know, uh, a kind of hilarious, you know, inversion of this example. I can, uh, 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 you know, uh, mention that um, I think it was uh, from uh, Thailand. I think it was, and the advertisement that was being used was to, uh, you know, uh, you know, advertise for a, a German car that you know is being, you know, you know, more recently imported there. Guess what they used for that? Hmm. Well, uh, he was a dictator that ran the country for a few years (laughs) during the whole World War II thing. Uh, Yeah, they they used a little caricature of him as sort of the you know centerpiece of the advertising campaign because that's what they apparently thought was about Germany. uh, Germany was about, (laughs) and so it's a sort of you know it's very humorous to to us. But this is basically what we are doing to everyone on that side of the planet.
1: Yes, (laughs) about all this other stuff too. Well, there's this thing that's, that's really part of this that is um, the countries in the Middle East especially do not have the political power and influence to have this kind of cultural outreach campaign that you know, the United States and England do. Mm-hmm. We had this entire thing. That's basically how the Cold War ended was American cultural exports took over the world. So America yes. has a lot of political power in how America is viewed.
0: Donald's is more than just fast food, you see. It's, a, it's an idea, it's a concept that now you know, is uh, you know, set up, shop you know, from, you know in every continent except Antarctica. But so
1: in this episode, we hadn't quite gotten to Orientalism just as definitional and not necessarily inferior. Here we are working with stereotypes that were ingrained during World War Two, where we had to demonize the Japanese, and we wind up with this crap.
0: Yeah, it's like okay, you got the Fu Manchu, you got the uh, you know you know, uh, you know face makeup to change your co- you know color of your skin, and it's really kind of uncomfortable when it first comes on screen. You kind of try to ignore it as it continues, but it's still like jeepers, guys, what were you thinking?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it it really could have walked out of a you know forties. 40s- war propaganda poster of the the evil mongoloid empire
0: which uh you know this you know those propaganda posters themselves are sort of some ways recycling even more you know older uh you know you know you know stereotypes bigotries and you know propaganda from uh you know previous eras as well so i mentioned the mongol empire you know you know the you know the was like the 13th century the you know the mongols were sort of moving further uh, west and everyone in Europe was freaking out. And they're like, oh, God, this horrible empire is going to murder us all. Thus, we, you know, you know, give up everything. And and so it sort of, you know, was, you know, cemented that, you know, there's these weird people with this funny look to them. And they this is what they look like. They all look like this because we're Europeans and don't know any better. And uh, and so we got to fear them and uh, demonize them to drum up support for our military counter attacks and things like that. And so, yeah. This, in short, all this sort of, you know, you know, you know, you know, horrible stereotyping has been kind of going on for centuries.
1: Yeah, John Collins or John Collis even said that he was going for a Genghis Khan look for core.
0: Khan Kor, it's kind of similar sounding
1: too. Yeah, they've also used Khan before, like Khan <laughs> the <laughs> superhuman. <laughs> It was like that part of the name was like, "Oh, Genghis Khan, the military dictator."
0: I've actually known a, a few folks with last name Khan. Hmm. They, they were pretty cool, though. They, they were not like caricatures of Star Trek.
1: So you don't call them over with Khan? Khan? No. I don't know. I didn't have a ton more, and I'm tired, so I don't know if we should move on to things. Not
0: well. I I could mention you know briefly there was a mention of Armenia. Oh yes. and you know just sort of you know a general. You know a little bit of information about the Ar- Armenia for uh, our uh, our listeners here. Uh, Armenia in the bo- uh, present day is a, a small country in the uh, the Caucasus region of uh, uh, Europe slash Asia, uh, and it's uh, sort of settled in between uh, Turkey and Iran and Georgia and Azerbaijan. But uh, historically, Armenia was actually uh, like three or four times the size of, of that of the country it is today, and uh, you know it's sort of a, you know, a, a very much a, a bit of territory behind, between, you know, uh, regions that tend to generate a lot of uh, uh, massive land empires, uh, And so and the mention about it being invaded, uh, you know, sort of as a, a go through was, you know, was, was kind of apt because it kind of was several times over. So throughout history.
1: I was really uncomfortable was with that analogy. A little bit. There's this idea that they have to come in as this military superpower and protect the poor defenseless people who are caught in the middle of their stupid war.
0: Yeah. And the thing about space though, is that, you know, unlike real life Armenia or Belgium is that you can quite easily go around.
1: Yeah. I'm not there's, sure. There's three dimensions. How <laughs> do these, I'm still not clear how these space things are supposed to work because obviously you cannot explain a weird, super complicated, like, at this point probably four or five dimensional if you're dealing with faster than light travel and interstellar space. Um yeah, yeah, moving the
0: stars themselves and you know things are you know in, in constant motion and you got you know, your normal three dimensions and you got that going in here and you got you know time you know time warp effects because you're going FTLs and all that. It's all it's all credit madness.
1: Yeah, and what are, what are those called? Micro effects or whatever it is like the, the things that are pushing planets apart at larger scales
0: um i think i need to know more about what you're talking about to remember the definition
1: it's when you get it to soup when you get out to larger and larger like interstellar scales the small effects that don't affect you on like an individual stellar scale start going start hitting and that's what's pushing the universe apart and
0: oh you're talking about uh you know like uh dark energy sort of stuff yeah
1: dark energy strange matter uh micro forces or
0: well, I don't think strange matter is a thing, really. But but, anyway. yeah. <laughs> but uh, you, know, you know, dark energy, I do uh, you know believe that there's something that's at least uh, you know generating the effect of that. Um, but uh, that that's a little bit more complicated. And that's more of a on the you know intergalactic scales. So
1: they just get into this weird thing of like they said this is the only habitable planet like on this particular invasion route. I mean, I guess we don't need all these super detailed things, but, like, we don't have any idea how the, how any of this functions on any level. They just tell us we are going to be at war and we need to be on this planet. It's,
0: it's sort of, you know, they, they've constructed a situation that's very particular to this particular plot.
1: Yeah, they always do this. Space is very two-dimensional in Star Trek.
0: So, uh, we're, we're you, know, you know, Star Trek is very much, you know, prone to uh, Khan's final failings, so... Anyway, um, I, I don't think I got much more. Uh, we already talked about
1: pretty much everything I was going to talk about, so all right. Hooray. Shorter episode, but I think that it is now time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Woohoo! Hey, Gepp, wouldn't it
0: Welcome back to the game show portion of the show. How are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling just fine, Is this I understand that you have some prizes for our wonderful contestants.
0: Oh, yes. I, I got four of them today. Four glorious prizes and four glorious rewards. So our first award is going to the Organians for being sufficiently advanced aliens. What do they win, Depwin?
1: The Argonians win a Mind Sifter or maybe a Mind Ripper. Depends how much power you hmm. use.
0: I wonder if their energy being this will uh, resist them uh, from that sort of uh, you know technological uh, you know mayhem there. But I guess we'll find out if they ever decide to use it. Or will it be too violent for them? I'm not sure. They seem to be uh, a little ambiguous about that. Hmm. Our second award is the Never Tell Me the Odds Award, which goes to Spock for, well, giving ridiculously bad odds for them succeeding at their mission. What is the Wind Gap win? Spock
1: wins the Mind Scanner. Probably the same thing. We don't know. We're going to mention it a lot, and it may or may not work on him. It's unclear.
0: Hmm, I wonder if his mental discipline will be able to uh, get him through a second time. Our third award is the Fallibility of Man Award for Kirk. For are kind of realizing near the end that maybe he should be okay with the Organians forcing them to end the conflict and preventing the deaths of millions of people. What does he win, Capwin?
1: Kirk wins. The threat of the Mind Scanner. It's the Mind Scanner. We're going to use it on you, really, I promise this time. I wonder
0: if Kirk will end up getting back his Mind Scan this time. Ho ho! Our final award is the Not Cool Man award, which goes to whoever decided on the look of the Klingons. That makes them look like horrible caricatures of a... Uh, very anti-east asian uh propaganda sort of situation here and all that matters we just talked about was he win gepwin or what do they win i don't even know who this is
1: they win the mind scanner tm it's in the episode i promise it's going to be important later we keep mentioning it Oh, the episodes over
0: i guess if we ever did end up using the mind scanner we would have found out exactly really what were they thinking oh my
1: well that seems to be all of our contestants and i don't even know if they get their prizes because why did they keep talking about that mind scanner so much? Good question, Geflin. Well, uh, that's everything that we had today on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show.
0: Wahoo! Well, hee that
1: was a thing. I'm really not looking forward to next week, Izixx. Oh yeah, because the
0: next episode I think is one of the ones that people often mentioned as like one of the worst ones.
1: Yeah, the alternative factor. Maybe we'll have an alternative to the to
0: that one. Yeah, in our in our,
1: in our hearts. <laughs> so, the alternative factor winds up on worst lists all the time. It is arguably the worst episode of the first season, uh, if not the entire original series.
0: Which, given how we've lit up some of the other episodes. Oh my!
1: So the thing with this one is it's just boring as as anything. Just I saw this. This is the thing with this episode too, because I have a personal, somewhat traumatic history with this episode. Oh! I was staying in a hotel uh, a while back, and Star Trek was on. Mm-hmm. And I was staying with my parents, and my mom really liked Star Trek, and we put it on the Sci-Fi Channel. And it was this weird sci-fi super special edition rerun thing they were doing. Which effectively just meant it had three times as many commercials.
0: Oh. So this episode's going to be an hour and a half long now. Two hours Hooray! Long. This oh, episode wow. was
1: two hours long. Which means they had <laughs> more than an hour of commercials. Because these episodes only average about 45 minutes. What the
0: heck were they even thinking there?
1: And then not only that... But this episode includes just minute-long stretches of this guy wrestling himself in weird psychedelic sort of washed out, you know, negative exposure scenes that are just minutes long with nothing happening. It sounds like it's going to be a bad time for both yeah, of us. Yeah, I mean I, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm going to get through a synopsis really quick on this kind of thing. Because I feel like 90% of the episode is going to be the guy goes into the weird tunnel thing and fights. And that's going to be five <laughs> like five to ten minutes of episode described right there.
0: And then the fight's over, and then they go to this other thing, which takes ten, 10 minutes.
1: Yeah, overall... It's and then just, the episode's over. I don't know what they were thinking with this one. Like, like it's just a very... It's widely agreed to be one of the worst episodes. It's just just pretty I, awful.
0: So, uh, so I guess we should, uh, you know, uh, uh, preface this then you know, uh, you know, uh, Gene Coon has been uh, uh, Gene Al Coon's been doing some of the more recent episodes we've covered that, you know, including ones we've, you know, we've been a bit more, you know, you know appreciative of. Uh, but uh, this is somebody else entirely who wrote Yeah, this, one, this so.
1: next one is written by somebody called Don Ingalls, who I haven't seen much of, but we're not looking up all this because we already talked about one episode this week. Yes.
0: <laughs> and we'll, we'll go into the details later, so yeah.
1: Yep, we're going to have to appropriately torture ourselves next week when we watch The Alternative Factor on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on
0: Watchers of Tomorrow... Me and Gapwin suffer forever! You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on YouTube.com slash Dr. and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from Transporter Syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.